Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. May that, I pray, proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Thanks, Bree. It's good to be with you. My name is Dave, and I have the joy of being one of the pastors here. Uh, you might, if you've been around for a while, you know that VJ and I kind of bounce back and forth between uh, Vaughn and, and our congregation in Bolton. And uh, just for the sake of an update there, um, exciting times are, are, are happening over in Bolton. And so next week, which is uh, June 17th, is actually our celebration service uh, for Bolton Alliance Church because that'll be the last time Bolton Alliance Church officially in that sense meets on a Sunday. And then beginning in July and August and into the fall, we're going to be launching what is Upper Room Community Church uh, in Bolton. So these are very exciting days for us. Actually, next week, both VJ and I will be in Bolton and uh, you'll just stand here, just sit here for 40 minutes and stare at a blank screen. Um, no, one of our elders, Tim Rupetsky, is going to be uh, sharing in the word uh, with regards to generosity and how that's part of the practice of putting others first. So we just wanted to let you know that. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, um, I'd love to meet you later on, so let's make sure we have a chance to say hello. We have begun a new series uh, in called, uh, called Fighting Gravity, and the subtitle of this is The Practice uh, of Putting Others First. And the big idea here is that we need to fight back against this, gravita- this self-centered gravitational pull. For the past eight weeks, when we did our, 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 previ- our former series, um, Being Human, we talked about a whole variety of different things. But what does it mean to be made in the image of God, and how does that play out in our lives? And one thing that we wanted to spend a few weeks doing was saying, okay, what do we do with all of that? How do we practically do certain things that will help us live out the way of Jesus as we interact with others. And so in a sense, gravity, the law of gravity is something that is at play all the time, right? We're always acting against it, whether we're thinking about it or not, even being able to lift up your hands and move your head. We're always feeling the weight of gravity on us, but there's something inside of us that fights back against that. Otherwise, we would just sit there and we'd become one with our couch or one with our seat if we didn't fight back against it. In the same way, self-centeredness or selfishness is like the law of gravity in that it's always at play and if we're not careful, if we're not thinking about it, we're not going to be fighting back against it and we're just going to melt and kind of collapse into ourselves. And so really what we're saying is we want to fight back against, against this self-centered gravitational pull that all of us feel in one way or another. And if you do feel it, I mean, we've got to be mindful of it, but in a sense we're actually like maybe raised to, 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 to be self-centered. And what I mean by that is, if you spend any time with a, with a newborn baby or a one-year-old or a two-year-old, they cry, they squawk, they make some sound, they roll over, and what happens? Everybody around them freaks out and tries to figure out what their issue is, right? 
So are they hungry? Are they wet? Are they tired? Do they need something? So there's this idea that even in how we raise our children, how we were, how we were raised, there's this sense of, oh, it is all about me. And then this actually continues to happen as we get older and we start to think for ourselves, doesn't it? If I've been raised to think that, you know, as soon as I talk, everyone's going to listen or they're going to try and serve me or whatever it might be, as we get older, that actually just intensifies because then we begin to think for ourselves and we begin to create a value system for ourselves or a system of beliefs. Here's what I believe. Here's what my values are. Here's what's morally right and acceptable and what's morally wrong to me. And without even knowing it inside of us, without even being out loud in our minds and our hearts, we begin to make like these little, um, you know, criticisms of other people or judgments on other people. They're, they're not there's something wrong with them because they're not exactly like me. They're not thinking just like me. And so this happens on an individual level, but of course it happens in a relational and community level as well because we tend to find ourselves in tribes of people that think like us, act like us, talk like us, feel like us, smell like us, right? That's more comfortable there. There's less tension for us there because these are my people, we might say. And so on an extreme sense, perhaps, you know, you've got a, perhaps you've got like a, a family, like a, me, my, a family-centric way of life. So my family values trump anybody else's family. Maybe that's a cultural thing or an ethnic thing. On an extreme case, you'd find yourself, you know, um, living in an ethnocentric kind of worldview where, okay, I understand that there's all these beautiful different kinds of people, but they're all like second, third, fourth, fifth place by comparison to mine. An extreme case of that would be like xenophobia, right? Which is the, the fear of other cultures. And actually at the bottom of that is, is where the root of, of war comes from. Where the, where the root of, of, of battle and contention comes from. Those people aren't like me. They should be like me. They should be like us. And so let's go to war to make them like us. Or maybe they're trying to change me, so I want to fight back against that. And where does this come from? Well, I think we live in a world that makes it easy to live in isolation. I can be all by myself. I can think what I want to think, or I can be with my little tribe of people thinking and feeling and, and believing whatever we want to believe all on our own, and I don't need to be exposed to other people. And how did I get to this place of belief? Well, uh, I, I have ultimate, endless inter, um, uh, access, rather, to, uh, to, to information. So I can pick and I can choose from different philosophies, from different religions, from different uh, streams of thought, whatever I want. I can pick and choose and create my own set of beliefs, and I can almost dismiss if I want hundreds, if not thousands of years of tradition and history that brought those beliefs to be what they are. But, but because I picked and I chose, and those are who, that's who I am, that's what I believe, uh, I, I can thrive now on my own, and if you're not like me, well, you're really where the problem is, it's not with me. What's going on here? This is succumbing to the gravitational pull of self-centeredness in our lives. And if we're not aware of it being there, then we're not going to know how do we fight back against it. A, a really practical, tangible example of how this plays out in our world, I think, would be social media. So I believe, you know, that originally, the idea of online community, it was created to connect people. And the way that people connect most effectively is when there's a sense of interaction. You say something, I say something. You post something, I respond to how that makes me think, feel. There's a back and forth, there's a community, there's engagement, there's an, a conversation. But it seems to me like what social media, among other things, but what social media has become today is an outlet to be heard. It's a platform. I'm not necessarily even interested in what your comments might be on my thought. What's most important is that my thought is out there and you got to see it and you got to hear it. And again, it's not just on the internet. We carry ourselves sometimes in, like this even as we interact with other real flesh and bones human beings right in front of us, right? What's most important is that you heard me. That's what's most important. You heard my point? Okay, good. And th the conversation's over. Well, it actually wasn't a conversation in the first place, was it? Um, and so it seems like our world has become this place where being heard matters more than anything else. And again, what is that the result of? Me-centeredness. It's me. 
You, you need to know who I am. You need to know how I feel. You need to know what I believe. You need to, you need to, you need. And it, it's like we trick ourselves into believing it's about the other, but really it's just about us. It's about making sure that we're heard, about making sure that we're understood. As long as you've heard my point, that's all that really matters. And all of this is, again, the result of the gravitational pull of self-centeredness that all of us are under. And what's great about this is Scripture actually gives us a couple of different ways of thinking about this, but it gives us a word that actually sums all this up, and that word is sin, right? This word that talks about what it means to think that I am even more important, or I'm even better off, or I'm even wiser than God himself, right? And so if you look at the very basic equations, I think, that are going to be on the screen, selfishness is this idea that I am greater than God. And if I'm greater than God, then of course I'm greater than others, right? And this is something that we inherited because Adam and Eve made a decision at the beginning of time. They made this decision to take things into their own hands, to go against God, to trust themselves more than they trusted him. Why? Because they succumbed to that, that gravitational pull of self-centeredness. And really, that's what, that's what sin is. And, and what sin is in another way is because of this decision to go against God, to take things into my own hands, to believe that I'm better on my own than he ever could offer me help, because of this, what this has done is it's actually built a, a major mega gap between us and God. And this idea is that God is, is life, he's the creator of life, the giver of life. Well, when we sin, when we take things into our own hands and we trust ourselves more than we trust him, we actually experience a, a type of death. And so that gap is more than just like a mile. It's actually the difference between life and death. And so it's a helpful word in that it tells us all of that. It's almost like a diagnostic. So we hear this word, we say, ooh, that's bad, right? That's not good. I need to do something about that. And then what we see is we actually have a solution to this. And that solution is Jesus, right? Jesus comes and shows us how to live a life that is completely other-centered. Jesus lives a life that is constantly fighting the gravitational pull of self-centeredness because it becomes an other-centered perspective. He practices over and over again what it means to put others first. And what's fabulous about Jesus, there's a lot of things I could say following that statement, but, but what's amazing about him is it's not just that he came and gave his life and, and, and lived and died and rose again and by faith in him that we can be made new, that we can be forgiven of our sin, that the, the stuff that, that made us spiritually dead, that that can be erased and we can be given spiritually. That is a big deal, okay? That is a really big deal, but it's not just that. What's amazing about Jesus is he doesn't just say, trust me, he also says, follow me. And so when we trust in him and he gives us this new life and then we say, I'm going to follow after you, what he does in following him, he's saying, be like me, live like me, interact with others like I do. And when we look at him, when we look at other figures all throughout scripture in the New Testament in particular, we see what does it mean to live a life that is other centered and not me centered? What does it mean to fight back against the gravitational pull of self-centeredness to, pr uh, to practice putting others first. And so what we wanted to do, VJ and I, is kind of talk about a few things that are very practical in terms of, okay, how do I, f how do I live under a new paradigm? What are some practical things I can say, do, think about that will actually help me to do this? Why we chose the word practice, the practice of putting other f others first. Here are some things we can actually do. And today, what I want to talk about is this uh, reality that the way that we practice putting others first can be as simple as your next conversation. The words that we use, the interactions that we have. We don't have to overthink this. We don't have to overcomplicate this. The very next conversation that you have, the very next conversation that I have, provides us with an opportunity to practice putting others first. And so as Bree read for us a moment ago from, the, from um, 
the, the letter to the, uh, the church in Colossae, Colossians, we actually see the Apostle Paul who's in prison and he gives us a little bit of insight. It's a short passage, but I think there are three little things we can pull from that help us understand how can we interact with others? How can our conversations be shaped to be a method or a way, an opportunity really to lean into to practice putting others first. And so um, a little bit of context, the Apostle Paul has this radical life transformation, goes about telling people about Jesus, and, and as many people as were uh, converted became to faith as a result of his ministry, there were like double, triple, quadruple the amount of people that hated his guts and were trying to kill him. And so more than once, about four times he finds, or he writes rather, four letters from prison. Colossians is one of these letters that he's writing to a church in a place called Colossae while he's in prison. And he says that this is why I'm in chains, right? In verse three there. He says, pray for us too that God may open a door for our message that we may proclaim the mystery of, of Christ for which I am in chains. And so what he's talking about here, yes, he's in prison. Why is he in prison? He's in prison because he had this deep conviction that it was important to talk about Jesus with other people. To the point, and as you go and read through parts of the New Testament, you can read, I believe it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 10, or 11, somewhere in there. If you go read those three chapters, I'm sure you'll find it. You'll get a little bit of the biography, the backstory of everything that the Apostle Paul endured because of his faith. Because he went from place to place talking about Jesus, trying to tell others to reveal this mystery of Christ, something I'll talk about in a second. As he was doing that, people pushed back on him and, and were, they would stone him, they would throw him in jail. He was always running away from different people. And the point of all this being is that he was so convinced that he was willing by the power of God to endure anything that was thrown his way for the sake of telling others about Jesus. Now, that word proclaim might be one that messes with us, us a little bit because we might think, well, the reason Paul was put in jail was because he was aggressive in how he talked about it. And so perhaps that brings into our mind this idea of a street preacher, someone who wears a sandwich board or someone who's got these little tracks that they're handing out or perhaps you know uh, the Jesus guy at the northwest corner of Young and Dundas Square. Does anybody know what I'm talking about when I say that? Okay, his name is Sarko. He's actually a really kind, gentle guy, goes to People's Church actually in Toronto. Um, and yet, you could know he's there. You could see him from 500 meters away. And as you're walking, he'll go, repent! And, and you, everything within you repents without you even thinking about it because your body just loosens and you give yourself over to whatever that experience is because it startles you so much, right? And now I've gotten to know Sarko just a very little bit and see that he's just so convinced that that's the role in the kingdom he's supposed to play. We might have different methodologies in how that plays out, but I'm not going to rip on him or anything like that. But we might have that picture right? Or maybe we've seen others who are far more aggressive, who are picketing or are getting in your face, who are saying, you need to hear what I have to say. I'm going to tell you how you ought to think, what you ought to believe. And we have that picture and we say, okay, I could see why in, in, in a theocracy, in a theocratic culture rather, at the time when Paul and the apostles were ministering, why he'd get himself in trouble. You walk around talking about Jesus and that people ought to believe in him, that he gives life when Jesus was killed because they believed that he was a blasphemer, saying that he was God. It's a very, right? You can see why that would happen, but that's not actually what proclaiming in this sense is all about. Because the word proclaim is best defined as taking an idea or taking a perspective and entering it into the marketplace of ideas. And so it's saying, I have a voice, I have something I wanna share, I have something that can make a difference, and I'm gonna put it out there into this, again, marketplace of, of philosophies and theologies and, and theories and all these kinds of things. And so we could say, well, Paul got himself in all this trouble because he was aggressive, but actually what we see is, yes, he was confident, yes, he was bold, 
But we know from parts of scripture in the book of Acts in particular that he would spend anywhere from three weeks to, to three months to even as long as a year interacting with different cities, with different religious leaders. And as he did that, he reasoned with them and he used logic. And yes, he was trying to persuade them, but there was a back and forth interaction where he got to know the people he was talking to. And it wasn't just about being heard for the sake of being heard. It was about listening to where people were at and then bringing the conversation of Jesus into that. And again, there are multiple places in scripture we can read about. That doesn't, I mean, so he still got put in jail because people didn't like that he was doing that. Okay, granted. Um, But he had this sold out commitment that yes, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the solution. And I'm going to do what I can to bring him into the conversation. And so one of the ways that we fight gravity is not just by fighting to be heard, but by actually ensuring that we listen to the people that are in front of us, that we have a way of engaging with them, interacting with them, conversing with them, and putting them first, practice putting them first by hearing them and not just trying to be heard. Okay, so secondly, the next thing we kind of pull from here is this little phrase, the mystery of Christ. So Paul says, pray that we would have the opportunity to continue proclaiming the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. As this idea of proclaiming the mystery of Christ becomes the second way that, in the, uh, that, in, uh, that as we interact, as we have conversations with other people, that we're able to help them get closer to Jesus. Now, this idea of the mystery of Christ is actually kind of an interesting one because if we read the New Testament, we see that it's actually not a mystery. What it's doing is it's referring to how Jesus, the Son of God, came and made a way for all humanity to be made right, reconciled, at peace, to have that sin gap, that separation of life and death from that me-centered way of living. All that can go away by faith in Jesus because he gave himself for us. And and so as you read and see how various writers in the scriptures um, relay this message, we see that it's actually not a mystery. You can actually go and find out what it is. But on the regular day-to-day, when Paul was preaching, when other members of the, of the early church were preaching, and even today, it very much seems as a mystery. And what we mean by that is, well, it's kind of confusing. We need more clues. It's not necessarily as concrete as we want to be because let's face it, when you start talking to other people, when we start having conversations about how there's a creator and how he made us with a purpose and how he's given us value and how we don't just exist and then stop existing, but we exist with the potential of existing in the presence of our creator forever, that's complex stuff. But how do you get to the place where you can reveal the mystery of Christ for a particular individual? If, again, the self-centered, if you're not fighting gravity, if it's just about being heard, then we'll never get to this point of revealing the mystery of Christ. Because more often than not, there are unique, distinct ways that the mystery of Christ can be revealed to various individuals. And now, yes, there is this idea that Christ is Savior, and that's a message that applies to all people. But when someone starts talking about a relationship issue, or an issue they're having with finances, or a job, or, or, or a great deal of loss that they're suffering from. There's various ways that we actually see that Jesus is the answer, the sol- answer to all those questions, the solution to those problems, how he's the true hope. But we don't get there if we don't stop talking. We don't get there. I'm gonna come back to some examples of how we can do that practically in a minute, but, but before that, if we're being, if we're trying to help others, but we're still inadvertently submitting to this gravitational pull of self-centeredness, what happens is instead of getting people to the message of Jesus, we actually just give them good advice. 
And what we're doing is we're saying, I want to help you, but, but I want to help you based on my experience, based on what I know, based on what I've done. So, for example, this guy named Jeff Vanderstelt wrote a book called Gospel Fluency, which I highly recommend. Here's a quote that kind of explains this big idea. He says, too often, when giving people answers to their questions or solutions to their problems, we give them something other than Jesus. If they are struggling with finances, we give them the best budgeting advice we know of. If they're working through relational discord, we teach them communication techniques. If they are struggling with doubt, we challenge them to believe, promising that all will get better if they do. Right? And so let's just be honest with yourself. Can you think of a time when you're interacting with another person, believer, someone who follows Jesus or someone who's not following Jesus, whoever they might be, and they started talking about what was the challenge in their life, what was hard in their life, and you went to self-help because we lack faith in that moment for some reason. Or maybe we're not exactly convinced of it ourselves that Jesus can actually be and is actually the answer to every question and the solution to every problem. And we go to, what that is, that's actually like self-centeredness disguised in putting others first. Because we're trying to say, well, I want to help you, but I'm not submitting myself to you completely because I'm only giving you what I know. I'm not giving you something else. I'm not giving you something bigger. I'm not giving you Jesus. And if we think that we have had enough experiences, and like granted, sure, lots of us have had many different experiences, lots of life experience, lots of wisdom and all that kind of thing. But, but if we're thinking that we have enough of that, that we don't actually need to get to God, then what is that? Self-centeredness, right? Because it's I'm the source of hope. I'm the source of life. I'm the source of your solution. And I'm not pointing to Jesus in doing that. And so if we're not getting to the point in our conversations, in our relationships, in our interactions with other people, where we're able to hear them talk about what their biggest challenges in life are, then we haven't begun to practice putting others first. We're only concerned about being heard. How do we get to the place of having the opportunity to proclaim the mystery of Christ in someone's life? Oftentimes when they invite and they ask for it. Sometimes, sure, we have to speak in. We have to cut, but it's not about us speaking first. It's not about talking to others with an agenda. Okay, number three, he says then, let, our conversa- or let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. There's that idea of answer. To give an answer implies that there's a question asked, by the way. It's not really giving an answer if no question has been posed. And so, but more importantly, for the sake of this point, this idea of let your, your talk, or your conversation rather, be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. This idea of being seasoned with salt is not just a clever illustration or analogy that Paul pulls out of thin air. He's referring back to what Jesus said to his first followers. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are, are present in the earth. You have a preserving quality in the earth. You have a purpose here on earth. So as you go, you are doing what salt does as it applies to different things. And there are three, at least three things I can think that salt does. Maybe it does more, but at least three Number one thing that I think salt does is it, um, it adds flavor, okay? So in order to make something more tasty, we add salt to it. It's a seasoning, right? The spice of life, whatever it is. Well, how does the salt actually add flavor to the piece of meat or to the vegetable or to whatever it is that we're seasoning? The way that salt does this is that it sops up the water molecules that dilute the flavor, okay? So if you're looking at this delicious piece of uh, steak, if you happen to be a meat eater, or this delicious piece of uh, tofu, contr- uh, I'm not, uh, uh, patty, um, some of them are very good. Still not the real thing, but they're very good. Um, 
And you look at it, man, that looks delicious. It smells good and all that kind of thing. And you, your, your mouth is like just salivating and whatever. You bite into it. You actually can't get the fullness of the taste because the water in your mouth dilutes the ultimate flavor that's there. So by adding salt to it, the salt goes to work in diluting the water molecules on the piece of food that was seasoned as well as in our mouth. And so when you eat it, man, okay, that's how it works. So what does this have to do with our conversation being seasoned with salt. I think that the words that we use as we interact with others have the opportunity to sop up all of the theories and philosophies in the world that dilute people from being able to see the actual truth. So as we bring the truth of who Jesus is into our conversations, there's something there that says, well, maybe what I have been believing isn't complete. Maybe there isn't actual hope in that, but it's diluted. They don't have the full picture They don't have the full taste, so to speak. The second thing that salt does, I would say, is it makes us thirsty. Well, that's convenient for the sake of this analogy, isn't it, Apostle Paul? Because not only are we adding flavor to life as we show them how things are really meant to be, but as we talk, and sometimes it's just a little bit here and there, it makes them thirsty, and then what they're saying is, I want more of that. There's something that you offer. I don't know, we could pull analogies like from Jesus, you know, the idea of the water of life and and how he gives water and you'll never need to drink again, how he quenches all of our thirst, absolutely. And as we talk about that kind of thing, they want more of that because our our salted language, right? I'm I'm being careful to say our salty language because I know salty has a really significant connotation with the younger generation. Um, But just follow me, okay? And so as we do that, it actually draws this thing where they say, I want more of what you have. Another thing that salt does is it preserves, right? So I come from an Italian home where almost every year we, well, not we, my parents, I just eat it, but my parents take uh, various cuts of pork and they cure it. So whether it's a prosciutto or a sausage or whatever it is, they take meat and they add salt to it and then they hang it up for a while and what happens? The meat doesn't dry. The meat gets better and better, and better, and better, and better. And so there's even a sense that as we go about with salted language, language seasoned, conversa- as our conversations are seasoned with salt, that as we do that, we actually add preservational value to what's going on. It saves, salt saves the meat from decaying, and the words that we use can point to the Savior who will save individuals from decaying, many of whom are already experiencing that sense of decay and death and saying, this is not, this can't be how it was meant to be. And so I don't think Paul just pulls that out of thin air. I think he's actually giving us something practical and tangible to think about. And so as we practice what it means to put others first, what we are doing is we are saying, okay, how do I serve the person right in front of me with even the words that I choose to use? And and it might seem so far that there's a bit of an evangelistic bent or twist to what I'm saying, and that these are the ways that we interact and engage with people who who don't follow Jesus yet. And and that's true. We can absolutely apply those kinds of things. But I think it just has to do with how we interact with everybody, because many of the followers of Jesus I talk with are, are still thirsty for more Jesus. They're still craving more Jesus. They can't ever get enough of Jesus. And that's one of the ways we figure out who's, you know, like really committed to following him is they can't get enough of him. It's not just we made some decision someday and then got on with our life, like check that off the list. It's like, no, this actually absolutely, the power of God, the spirit of God has transformed how I live out my life. And so we're able to practice putting others first when we fight back against that gravitational pull of self-centeredness, which says it's most important to be heard. When we say it's not most important to be heard, it's actually most important to listen. And as I listen, then I have a way of speaking in with that salted language the message of Jesus, bringing the true solution to every problem, the true answer to every question into it. So some practical ways uh, that we can all put this into practice, okay? Number one, 
Ask good questions. Become a conversationalist. I wonder if you even reflect in your own life, the best conversationalists that you know, the people who are just so good at, you love sitting with them over coffee and you tend to linger with them for a long time. What is it about them? They have a way of asking questions and getting information out of you that you thought you'd never tell anybody else. And what's so good about it is that you don't feel like you're being interrogated. You feel like they genuinely care about you, right? They're genuinely interested in you. Interested in you. And so as we think about what it means to ask good questions as we interact with others, what we're doing is we're practicing putting them first because we're more interested in hearing what's going on in their life, hearing what's, what their life is all about, than we are just telling them how we think they ought to live it. This is really having conversations without an agenda. It's not trying to force feed anything. It, it's, not, it's not, you know, one thing um, that I hear oftentimes when people are, are concerned about having conversations with others, um, especially when it's somebody that they're trying to share Jesus with, they say, I never feel like I'm prepared enough, right? Um, I've never been to Bible college. I haven't read enough books. I haven't this, I haven't that. There's a sense of being unprepared. But what I love about a conversation is that you don't actually need to be prepared for a conversation. You just need to be in the conversation. And, and if you've ever read a book in preparation and interact with somebody else, it's unnatural. It's forced. Right? So if you've ever heard an interview where somebody's like reading from a script, you're just like, what is this? What's the point of this? This is like not what I'm looking for. You like when the interaction is back and forth and is natural. And so what I'm saying is let's not overthink this. Let's just practice what does it mean to ask better questions because we care about the individual. We want them to tell us more about what's going on in their life. Right? And so I'm not even going to give you an example of what a question might be. Because if I did, then what would happen is it would become like this concoction or this formula and you'd say, well, if I just do this question, this question, this question, uh, then it'll work. And I can't guarantee that'll work. And it also means it's not natural. They're also gonna think, wait, you go to church, right? Are you coming at me with like a secret clipboard, a hidden agenda where you're just trying to check things off? So I didn't wanna do that. But I wanna encourage you to do, or all of us to do, is to just think as we're talking, who's talking more, me or them? Am I actually listening? Am I only listening for my opportunity to speak to tell them what I've been thinking about saying? Or am I okay with actually having to pause in the moment to respond to them when they ask me for an answer? This is one of the ways that we practice putting others first. Another way is by being 10% more friendly. I can't give you a, a verse for this. Um, I can't give you a verse for this, but I'll give you some pers uh, a personal story at the very least. So uh, over the last couple of years, I was a part of some leadership training. It was part of a cohort thing. And um, one of the modules that we did was on evangelism. And so we're in BC uh, with our whole class from people all over North America and our, our, our professor comes and he starts talking about what does it mean to share, to tell other, others about Jesus. And one of the things he gave us, he says, just be 10% more friendly. He says, you'll be amazed at the types of conversations and situations you find yourself in when you're just a little bit more nice. Another friend of mine says, you have to lead with nice in all of your conversations. And so this means, okay, to be 10% more friendly, let's not get locked on that, what 10% means. It just means have a, mindful, a mindfulness of like, I want to be a friendly person. <laughs> I want to engage with people. as they Now, some of you are thinking about, you know, your significant other or your friend who always gets caught up in conversations with, you know, the person at the cash register or every attendant you could possibly think of. It's like, this is an opportunity to have a lifelong conversation. And maybe it is a little bit of that. But what I found, even in my own life, is that the more isolated our culture becomes, the less we want to actually interact with others. We just want to do business transactions with them. And there's no room for real conversation or life transformation and that kind of thing. And so he says, be 10% more friendly. We left from that module the next day. We all go to uh, Vancouver's airport and we're gonna fly out with Air Canada and the plane is delayed an hour. Not a big deal to be expected. Then they say, okay, it's actually delayed two hours. Now at this point, people are starting to get really, really agitated because you wanna get home, you've got an agenda to keep, you got whatever, schedule to keep. 
Then it's delayed like three and a half hours. And this is one of those bigger planes. There's like a couple hundred people. We're all standing around. Many of us that were in the class are getting on the same plane with all these people to go back to Toronto and our professor. And our professor is over there and is watching people starting to curse, scream at Air Canada like that's going to make a difference. They're just so frustrated. And he looks over at us and he goes, because now is the opportunity to be 10% more friendly. And so what do you do? You're stuck with people for a couple of hours. You engage them in conversation and what do you say to somebody who's getting on a plane? So where are you flying? You happen to be getting on the exact same plane with the exact same ticket as them, so you know exactly the answer to that question. But the idea is, you're being 10% more friendly. So where are you flying? Oh, is Toronto home? Or is Vancouver home? Or somewhere else home? Or what do you, you know? And you, you lean in. And what happened after that, within the a couple of days after that, we had this Facebook group. The amount of stories that began to pour in of how people like opened up and had these great conversations. Why? Because we were just a little bit more friendly and we ask some good questions. And through that, you get the chance to begin talking about Jesus. All of this is kind of wrapped up in this third point of application. Here's a formula if you're really desperate for one. Pray, listen, then speak. So Paul says, pray. Have a posture of prayer, right? Always be praying about what you're doing in your life, but pray also that we have the opportunity to proclaim. Pray that you'll have this opportunity to proclaim the mystery of Christ as you interact with others. So are we even praying for others as we're on the drive to go meet them at the coffee shop or, or as we know we're going to be having lunch with them tomorrow or as whatever it is? Are we mindful and praying for them saying, God, I just want to be able to serve this person and put them first today. So I pray for them. Whatever their needs might be, maybe they're going to be open and sharing that. Maybe they're not. We pray. Then we listen. And we're actually praying as we're listening. But what we're doing is we're listening for them genuinely by asking the good questions to bring some stuff out of them. We're not just trying to give them a quick and easy, quick and clean solution to all of it. We're listening for what? Ways in which we find their biggest struggles, their biggest issues. And when we find that, when we get there, when we're being genuine, when we're showing them we're putting them first, very often God rewards that situation or works in that situation and they ask, what do you think about this? Now, when they say, so what do you think about this? That's the opportunity to step in and proclaim the mystery of Christ. So let's say maybe they're having, a mo maybe they're having money problems. Maybe the problem is that they don't have enough money to, to pay their bills. And so they have this sense of, I, I, I'm falling behind. I haven't gotten a good enough job. I, maybe they've got that kind of, maybe it's money on the other side where they've got so much of it and they keep making more and yet they're not finding hope and joy in it. So if we're listening for this opportunity to have our salted language as we hear that, well, we bring Jesus into this by saying, well, I'm not going to say, well, you, this is how you can save more money or this is how you need to give all your money away. Instead, I'm going to say, you know what? If we just take money as an example, but kind of just move it to the side a little bit, there's something deeper inside of us which has this sense of always wanting to be, feel like we're worth it. And one of the ways our world tells us that we're worth it is by how we present ourselves or how much money we have. And, and, and you know what? We hear stories about people who've got endless amounts of money but are feeling absolutely empty inside because money will never actually fill that hole. And there becomes the opportunity to bring Jesus into the conversation and talk about the ways in which he sees us as valuable if our pockets are full or if our pockets are empty. There's something bigger and greater there. Maybe it's, again, relational, this idea of relational discord. Maybe they're feeling let down over and over and over again. So maybe they're in this relational problems is, is not necessarily anything that they're doing, but they just feel like they're always being left behind, like they're always being left out. Maybe if they're married, they're feeling like they're not getting attention from their spouse. Something is just broken, whatever it might be. And what we get to do is not just say, well, read this article in five days to a better marriage or anything like that. Instead, what we get to say is, you know what? 
from the beginning of time, there's been this sense where we're all fighting for ourselves. We're, we, we all want to be about ourselves, and oftentimes that causes us to make bad decisions. And instead of, you know, um, loving those who are nearest and dearest to us because we still think we matter more than them, we walk away and we do all sorts of things that actually hurt those people more. But, but Jesus is actually constantly emptying himself to make himself more available, to make himself completely available, or made it, make it aware to us, rather, that he is available to us and that he is with us in every circumstance, that he never abandons us. And yes, people leave us behind. Yes, relationships get broken, but Jesus is always seemingly coming closer to us and doing everything he can to fix our relationship. We can't get there if we're not listening to what's going on in their lives. And so all of this is around this idea of what does it mean to practice putting others first. And so friends, our challenge for today is fight back against that gravitational pull to make it all about us. And even as early as you begin having your next conversation, think of it as a gift from God, as an opportunity for us to start serving other people. And I keep leaning back on this idea of how do we get it back to Jesus, right? Because granted, there are lots of people who don't know Jesus that are excellent communicators, uh, who are excellent conversationalists, and all that kind of thing. But really what we're saying with this idea of practice is not do all of these things so that God will be pleased with you, but rather we're saying from a position of knowing that we are loved and accepted by God, that he is pleased with us already, let's go forward and practice doing these things and watch as he works in the midst of it. It's an act of submitting ourselves. So before we submit ourselves to any others in a genuine way, first we submit ourselves to God and we say, God, make me like you. Help me to love like you. Enable me to love others the way that you have shown me how to love others. Supernaturally, Holy Spirit, work within me so that there's a real sense that I can do this. And know that when we mess up, when we totally bomb it, when people say, oh, you just have some plan, know that when we do that, we can still come back to Jesus and say, okay, what went wrong there? Keep working on me. Keep molding me to make you more and more like me. I think it was last week that Vijay talked about this idea of the sails and the wind, right? A sailboat out on the water is just going to not really move until the wind begins to blow. So the idea with practicing is submitting ourselves and saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to put this into play. I'm going to try some of this stuff. And as we try some of this stuff, we see how God works, and it is always far more remarkable than ever, than we can ever ask or imagine. And so I think that this is what it means to put others first, um, even with the next conversation we have. The worship team's going to come, and, and I'm going to pray. God in heaven, um, help us to love others. Thank you for loving us, for showing us what it means to put others first. And we ask that you'd help us to do the same. God, I pray that you would... Um, for those of us in the room maybe who are uh, better at being heard than listening, I pray that you would just make us very aware of, of how much is being said, that you'd help us to think and process what we're hearing so we can respond and that we wouldn't have an attitude or an agenda or desire of just wanting to tell everybody and be heard, but that we would actually submit to you and serve others by, by hearing them and putting that first. And God, maybe there's some on the other side um, who are very, very good listeners, but need a, a boost of confidence to begin speaking as well. And so, God, I pray for, for those of us um, that are more hesitant, that are questioning their own thoughts, God, that they would have a confidence in you that is unlike any other, that they would know that as they, as they try this, you're going to meet and work in the midst of that. And all this, God, is, is for 
for your glory, for your sake. We don't want to just build lots of relationships and help people for the sake of it. We ultimately want to point them to you. We want to be able to proclaim the mystery of Christ. And God, I believe that only you can help make sense of this mystery. You can bring clarity to the souls of every individual that we meet. And even for us, as we reflect on our own story of coming to know you, we can probably all say in one way or another that yes, there were many people that helped us, but there was ultimately a miracle that you worked in our own lives that we became able to see how the mystery of Christ would be revealed to us, how Jesus really is the answer to every question and the solution to every problem. So God, I, I pray that we would have confidence that you do that. It doesn't matter how slick we are, how many good questions we have, no matter how friendly we are, unless you do that work, it won't happen. And so we, we submit to you even in that. God, all of this for your glory, that all of us may know you more and that some may know you for the first time. Help us to put others first, we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.